Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. This is Ephesians chapter 5, beginning with verse 21. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Well, good morning. Welcome to the Parkway Church. How are you guys doing this morning? Good. All right. I'm glad you're here for this cheery and non-controversial text here in Ephesians. Should be a lot of fun. Um, This is uh, kind of an interesting weekend. If you are visiting with us for the first time this week, uh, we're glad you're here. Typically, we like to talk about things like Jesus and the gospel and grace. But because we teach line by line through different books of the Bible, it forces us to talk about things we wouldn't typically talk about. And so today, uh, though we're not talking about the gospel directly, we hope that you see God's wisdom in this text. So as new people have joined our church, I often ask them, what is the thing you like most about Parkway? And the consistent answer that I've gotten is that you guys just teach the Bible. You don't try to water it down. You don't try to be politically correct. You just teach it like it is. And I'm glad. I'm glad that's your answer today for this text. So if you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. While you're turning there, I want to share with you some strange, interesting laws that I looked up recently that are still on the books, both in other states and other countries. So, number one, in Minnesota, any game in which participants attempt to capture a greased or oiled pig is illegal, okay? Just want to share that with you in case you're heading up to Minnesota and you think, you know what? I think I'm going to chase this greased pig through the woods. You're going to go to jail, all right? So that's the first law, still on the books in Minnesota. In Florida, if you park your elephant at a parking meter, you have to use the same amount of change as you would if you parked a car. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you know, I'll just take my elephant to work today and save a few bucks in change. You would be wrong, okay? That's still on the books in Florida. In England, it is illegal to die in the House of Parliament, okay? So if you feel a heart attack coming on, you need to make your way out the doors lest you die and break the law at the same time. In the great state of Alabama, it is illegal to wrestle bears. Now, I like that law because it sounds very Alabama. I feel like there's a good story behind that one. And then my favorite law, still on the books, this one's in China, is that if you are a Buddhist monk, you are not allowed to reincarnate without the government's permission, okay? That's why I love America, because you can reincarnate wherever you want, right? No one can tell you where you can and can't reincarnate. If you're a visitor, I'm also joking, we're Christians, we don't believe in reincarnation. Now, here is why I share with you these laws. This text in Ephesians is about to talk about us submitting to different authorities. Over the next several weeks, we will see that there are different authorities Christians are called to submit to. And here's why I give you these ridiculous examples of governmental laws. We don't submit to these different authorities because we necessarily agree with them or we think that they're the best. We submit to these authorities because we love Jesus. That's it. That's going to be the point of the text today. We're going to see that in several weeks. That's the point. We don't submit to authorities because we necessarily agree with everything in those authorities. We submit to authorities because we love Jesus. Now, in this text specifically, today we're going to be talking about the role of a wife within her marriage, okay? Now, this is something that I find very interesting in this passage. This is a very countercultural text. This is a very offensive message. Don't believe me? Just take this biblical text, go post it on social media with no comment, and see what happens, okay? 
This is a controversial text within our culture, but what I find fascinating is that this text is not controversial when you look at the rest of church history. For 2,000 years of church history, there's all kinds of debates going on, on the Trinity, on the end times, on salvation, but when it comes to the roles of men and women in the home, that is not something that's really debated, I don't want to say at all, but almost at all. And so my question is, how did a text go from being very clear, very black and white, to a culture that sees the text as very gray? And so what I want to do is I want to share with you, before we get into this text, I have a lot of setup and intro this morning because this text is controversial. Before we get into this text, I want to explain how we got there. So I want to give you a quick history of the feminist movement. I know that's what you were wanting. I know you got up this morning and you said, man, I hope that I can go to church and hear about the history of the feminist movement. So this is for you, okay? This is for you. So how did our culture change to what it is today on this issue? The feminist movement is typically seen as having happened within three waves, okay? Three movements, three waves. The first wave of the feminist movement was really big in the United States in the early 1900s. It actually started around 1830, but it's really big in the United States in the early 1900s. And what's going on in the early 1900s is to be a feminist simply meant that you believed that women should have political equality to men. So the first wave of feminism used the term feminist to mean someone who believes that women should have the right to vote, okay? That's not what the term means today. So if you're a Christian and you've been identifying yourself as a feminist because you think that that just means men and women are equal, that's not what the term means today. But originally, as the movement started out, that was the idea. So in the early 1900s, the push was for women's suffrage. So you had women, some of whom you might have heard of, Susan B. Anthony, Elizabeth Stanton, Virginia Woolf, these kind of ladies, that were pushing to say, we still want to be women, but we want you to put, take your foot off our necks. We want to have equal rights when it comes to the political sphere. And you got the first wave of feminism. The first wave of feminism, also, a lot of those women were involved in the abolition of slavery. All right? So they fought to end slavery in the United States. It's in the second wave of feminism, which happened in the 1960s. Now, some of you guys lived through the 60s. I didn't. It was crazy times. I've read about it. I've studied it. It seems to be the fault line in American history, and a lot of crazy things are going on in the 60s. And one of the things you got in the 60s was you got the second wave of the feminist movement. Now, this is where you started to get all the things today we would typically associate with feminism. So what's interesting is in the first wave of the feminist movement, the women wanted equal rights politically, but they were still very much women. They looked like women, they acted like women, most of them were married. Within the second wave of the feminist movement in the 1960s, you started to get a push towards androgyny. So no longer would men be over here and women be, would be over here and we would exalt them, but rather they would move towards the middle. You started getting things that today we would associate with the feminist movement, such as being pro-choice, pro-abortion. There was a strong pro-homosexuality push, specifically lesbianism. There was a promotion towards sexual promiscuity and then a critique that people were objectifying women, though that was the message. And so what you got is you got now in the 60s a move away from men and women, and both being exalted, to moving towards androgyny, to blurring gender lines. Some of the women that were really involved in that movement you might have heard of. So Gloria Steinem, who's a journalist even today. Uh, there was a lady named uh, Betty Friedan who wrote a book called The Feminine Mystique, which was a bestseller. There was a French philosopher named Simone de Beauvoir who wrote a book called The Second Sex in which she argues that to be woman is to be other. That man defines everything. Everything's defined by men. So if you want to find value as a woman, you've got to find it on your own. You're going to have to pull yourself up through those shackles, through your experience. And you got the second wave of the feminist movement. And then in the 1990s, you got the third wave of the feminist movement. Now it took on a racial element. Okay? 
So whereas previously it was a bunch of white women fighting for the rights of white women, in the 1990s, you now started to hear more voices from black women, Latino women, Asian women, etc. So there's an irony there that women that claimed that they were being overlooked overlooked women of other races. Okay? Now today, today to be a feminist has changed meaning again. Today it's simply linked with other left-leaning movements. So if there is a gay pride parade, there'll typically be a feminist element. If there is some sort of pro-choice rally, there'll typically be a feminist element. So it's even changed yet again. And interestingly enough, the feminist movement and the transgender movement, I know this is a lot of culture, by the way, I have a purpose, there's a method to this madness, so bear with me. The feminist movement and the transgender movement, though they work together, ideologically are completely opposed to one another. So if you're a feminist, your whole message has been, the only difference between men and women is our biology. That there's not a difference between a man's soul and a woman's soul, or a man's mind and a woman's mind. Our difference is just biological, but essentially men and women are the same. But if you're part of the transgender movement, that is the opposite of your message. Your message is that we're not just our biology, that gender is not just defined by our bodies, but rather you can be a man's soul stuck in a woman's body, you can be a woman's soul stuck in a man's body. And so I'm not sure that these two groups recognize how ideologically they are opposed to one another. So if a feminist were to say, you don't know what it's like to be a woman, we've always been oppressed, I now as a man can identify as a woman and say, I do know what it's like to be a woman and I know what it's like to be oppressed too, and I have robbed them of that claim. Now, here's the grand irony of the feminist movement as a whole, and then we'll get into this text in a second, okay? Is what this movement started out to do, it ended up doing the opposite, okay? So if what you're saying is this, that for you as a woman to have value, you need to look like a man, dress like a man, act like a man, do a man's job, you're not teaching that women actually have value as women. You're actually saying that the only valuable gender is men, and we should just all try to be like men. Do you see that? That's the big irony of the feminist movement. It didn't say have value as a woman, but stay a woman, and have value as a man, and stay a man. It, was, it says that if you're a stay-at-home mom, or you don't have this corporate job, that you're not really as valuable. What you should do is you should try to be as much like a man as possible, and somehow that will show that women have value. That's what the movement has done. That's what it is today. Now, okay, you guys ready to get into the text? Because I'm not. I've got eight more things to say. Listen, number one. We've got a lot of introduction. Number one, what do we do with this issue? Number one, the church cannot be embarrassed on anything that the Bible says. Okay? We can't read this text and kind of hold our nose as we read it. We're not to be embarrassed on any part in God's Word. I have seen ministers, when they get to this text, they just skim through it quickly so they don't have to talk about it. I have seen ministers spend entire sermons saying that submission doesn't really mean submission, as if that is Paul's point. We cannot be embarrassed on this issue. Do you really believe that everything that the Bible says is out for your good? That God knows how the world works better than we do, and we trust Him whether we understand it or not. Do you really believe that? That's what this text will make us ask. Okay? Number two, our view of men's and women's roles will make us look a little bit weird to the outside world. Okay? So you have to realize our culture is really big right now into name-calling, but not offering arguments. Right? So they'll call you a bigot or a sexist or a homophobe or whatever. They won't present arguments like adults do. They will do playground tactics with name-calling. Culture will, if you hold to the traditional Christian view on this topic, culture will call you sexist. But I'm here to tell you that God gets to define what is and is not sexism, not culture. Not culture. And so this will make you look a little bit weird to the outside world, but take heart. That's what we look like as Christians. We're not going to look just like the culture around us. There are parts of culture we need to love and embrace and reshape, 
but there are other parts of culture that we wholeheartedly reject. Number three, Zach, of course you're gonna say this. You're a man. How can you as a man get up here and tell women what they should do in their marriage and these kind of things? Well, number one, this uh, book is written by a man, Paul, but number two, this is a bigger issue that we all need to understand. Truth is an equal opportunity critiquer, okay? What our culture would say is you can only speak to somebody if you share their experience. So a single person can't offer advice to a married person or a man can't offer advice to a woman or vice versa or whatever it is. And I'm here to tell you that facts do not care about our feelings. Truth stands over everyone equally, regardless of gender, regardless of race, regardless of socioeconomic status. And so we can't say, well, I'm not gonna accept this truth from you because I don't like your experience. That's existentialism, that's not Christian, okay? We take truth wherever truth is found, regardless of who it comes from, okay? Regardless of who it comes from. Number four, all people have authorities that we're commanded to submit to. So if you're thinking, Zach, get to the part where you tell my wife to submit to me. Hold on there, bucko. I have something to say to you first. All people are commanded to submit to different authorities. So though I'm a husband and though I'm a father, I can think of at least four other authorities that are over me. So I'm an employee of the church, so Jeff Ashley is my boss, and so are the elders. I submit to them. As a member of this church, I submit to the elders. As a citizen, I submit to the government, and then at the top of all of that, I submit to Christ. So there's at least four other authorities I have to submit to. So submission is not uniquely a female issue, it is a human issue. It's what creatures do, and we are creatures. And so we are all, in some sense, under some type of submission. Number five, this is, this is heavy. Let's all take a big breath together. Oh, we're having fun talking about feminism and culturally controversial stuff. Welcome, welcome to the Parkway Church. Number five. You will not naturally like certain commands in the Bible due to sin. As one pastor says, the Bible will often offend you before it transforms you. The Bible often offends you before it transforms you. There is going to be something, if you are a wife, in your heart naturally that wants to kick against this command, okay? And it's because, according to Genesis, when mankind fell and the world was cursed with sin, one of the things that said is, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Meaning, whatever it means, it means there's conflict between husbands and wives. Conflict between husbands and wives. I have found it fascinating that if I'm talking with a couple that's struggling in this area, the wife has no trouble submitting to her boss at work, whether she respects him or not. She has no trouble submitting to the government, whether she respects him or not. But when it comes to her husband, she doesn't want to do that. Why? Because there's something broken in our hearts because of sin broken in our hearts because of sin. Wade and I were talking about this a little bit earlier this week, that a wife submitting to her husband is not a result of the fall. The fact that there's conflict and that she doesn't want to is a result of the fall. Number six, everyone hear me, especially if you're already mad, okay? If you're already mad, especially hear me. We are happy to chat with you more on this topic one-on-one. -on -one. I don't expect to move you from point A to point Z if you're not already here on this, on this topic, okay? If you're not a Christian, I don't expect you to hold this at all. Why would you? Why would you? But if you're a Christian and you're not there and you're frustrated after the sermon and you want to chat, we would love to talk with you. We'd love to sit down and open the Bible and grab coffee and hang out. This is a safe place for you to have questions and still be here, okay? This is a safe place for you to have questions and still be here. Um, what our culture will do is if they disagree with somebody, they think disagreement equals hate, and therefore you should demonize and get away from that person. 
What the Bible would encourage us to do is where there's disagreement, we work it out. We sit together as brothers and sisters and we chat about it. So we would encourage you to do that. Number seven, on this issue, there is a bad cultural presupposition, and this is the presupposition, that difference equals inequality. Okay? That's a presupposition our culture has, that difference equals inequality. Is that true biblically? No. Are the members of the Trinity different? Yes. Are they all equally God and worthy of worship? Yes. Okay? Jesus, in his earthly ministry, submitting to the Father, does that somehow make him less valuable? Does it mean that like, we don't need him for salvation or something? No. Difference doesn't equal inequality. Okay? God doesn't try to get rid of all differences. He says there are differences, but these differences are good. And then number eight, next week we will hit the men, all right? So ladies, bring your husbands back next week because this text is dealing with wives. The very next text, which is like three times as long, will be dealing with your boneheaded husbands, all right? So bring them back next week for, you know, Battle of the Sexes part two. Verse 21. Verse 21, let's get into the text with that huge introduction. Verse 21 says this, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, let me tell you why we're starting with verse 21 instead of verse 22. Verse 21, grammatically, linguistically, goes with what Jeff was talking about last week. Last week, Jeff was talking about what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit. And one of the things that it looks like to be filled with the Spirit is that we give deference to one another. We lay down our preferences for others. We serve one another. But this text conceptually goes with what follows. What does submission to one another look like? And Paul is going to tell us. So verse 21 sort of serves as like this hinge verse of linking these two sections together. Okay? What does verse 21 mean and what does it not mean? Let me tell you what it does not mean. It does not mean we now disregard everything the Bible is about to tell us about roles. The Bible's about to tell wives to submit to husbands, children to submit to parents, and slaves to submit to masters. So whatever verse 21 means, it can't go against those. I've heard people use it that way. Well, Zach, a wife shouldn't really submit to her husband because the Bible says that we're all to submit to one another. Okay? There is a sense in which we serve one another, but we do not mutually submit to each other in authority. Husbands do not submit in authority to their wives. Children do not, or parents do not submit in authority to their children. In a first century context, masters do not submit in authority to their slaves. It makes no sense. So here's how you have to take verse 21. Verse 21 is kind of like a header. It's kind of like a topic to say, submitting to one another, now let me show you what that looks like. Wives to husbands, children to, children to parents, slaves to masters. If you have a break or a gap in between verse 21 and 22 in your Bible, that's not originally there in Greek. That is an editor's decision. It actually all runs and flows together. So there is a sense in which we submit to one another and that we serve one another. So I'll give you an example. I serve my son Judah, okay? As soon as I come home, what do you think the first thing he says is? What do you think? Yeah, you'd think it'd be like daddy or yay or something like this. As soon as I come home, the first thing he asks for is a gummy vitamin, okay? Flintstones vitamins, which by the way are delicious. They're pretty much my favorite candy. Flintstones vitamins now has gummy vitamins. So as soon as I come in the door, the first thing he wants, gummy vitamin, gummy vitamin. I'm like, hello, good to see you. I hope you've enjoyed living in this house I've provided for you. He doesn't care. He wants a gummy vitamin. So I give him that, and the next thing he says is, dad, dad, play? Dad, dad, play? And so we get on the ground, and we play with blocks. And a lot of times, if we're building towers with blocks, I get way too into it. 
So I'm, I've spent all this time building this huge tower, and he knocks it down, and I'm like, hey, man, what are you doing? I was playing with these blocks, you know? But there is a sense in which I condescend. I get down on his level, though I'm an authority over him. I bathe him. I change his diaper. I serve him. But I do not submit in authority to him. He does not say, Daddy, we're going to have ice cream for dinner. And I say, that's right, son. And I bow the knee. It doesn't work that way. Okay? So yes, there's a sense in which we serve one another and we lay down our rights for one another, but we do not submit in authority to one another. This text is going to show us what it looks like to submit in authority. Verse 22. Specifically, it's going to deal in this text with wives. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Okay, a few things I want you to see about this text. Number one, notice that it is a command for wives to submit to husbands, not all women to submit to all men. Did everybody get that? That's really, really, really important. I can't just go up to some woman on the street and be like, are you a Christian? She's like, yes. I'm like, well, we're going to Alaska, Ephesians 5. It doesn't work. I'm going to get pepper sprayed if I do that, and rightfully so. This is not a command for women to submit to men generally. It is a command for wives to submit to your husbands. So, I want to say this. If you are a single gal, and you love Jesus, but you, for just whatever reason, don't like this idea of submitting to a husband, this text doesn't apply to you if you're single. But if you are married, you do not have the option. If you're married, you do not have the option. Okay? So this is a command for wives to submit to husbands. Next thing I want to mention here, the verb here in Greek is in the middle voice. Here's what that means. It means that Paul is emphasizing the voluntary character of the wife's submission. To say it another way, men, this is not a command for you to go home and subjugate your wives. Wives, this is a command for you to go home and voluntarily lay down your rights and follow the leadership of your husband. Okay? Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Now, what does that word mean? Wives, submit to your own husbands. Now, here's the deal. In our culture, the word submission has just a really bad connotation. It's a very negative connotation. When you think of submission, you think of slavery or you think of like a dog submitting or something like that. Uh, that's not the context it has here in this text. In fact, even in, uh, in sports, I'll give you a quick, uh, quick little ism here. So I'm not a huge sports guy. I love two sports. I love baseball and I love UFC. All right? Judge me if you will. Judge me if you will. Love UFC, love MMA. Now, here's what's funny. When we watch that, Katie gets more into it than I do. So I'm just sitting on the couch, and she's like, hit him! And she jumps up, hit him in the face! And I'm like, what has happened? Who are you? She's crazy. She just wants blood all the time. All right? And so in UFC, you can get somebody even to tap out by submission. And it's seen as this negative thing. It's a negative term. In Greek, the term and the idea to submit is not a negative term. It doesn't have a negative connotation. It does mean to submit. The Greek word is hupatasso. It means to put yourself under another person or to subordinate yourself to the authority of another. That is what it means, but it doesn't have a negative connotation. So for example, if a soldier submits to their commanding officer, no one would say, oh, that's disgusting. That's patriarchal. No one would say that. It's good for a soldier to submit to their commanding officer. If he doesn't, everything gets crazy and he becomes a loose cannon and a bunch of people get killed. So just because the term does mean to put yourself under another, it doesn't have a negative connotation of somehow being seen as less valuable. Okay? So the term doesn't mean 
that you as a wife cannot give your opinion. It does not mean that you as a wife can't have your hopes and dreams. It doesn't mean that you won't make most of your decisions together. I've at least found that about 95% of the decisions Katie and I make, we make together and we typically agree. Uh, it doesn't mean that, but what it does mean is that the buck stops with your husband. God has put an authority over you, and that is your husband, okay? That is your husband. Let me say it another way. Look at the end of this text. Do you see how it says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord? you see that last part? Look back up in verse 21. It says the same thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Here's what this text means. Here's what this text means. You're not submitting to your husband just because you think he's the best husband. You're submitting to your husband because you love Jesus. That's everything. If you get that, you get everything. Do you want me to give you a quick recap of every marriage I've ever counseled? This is the third church where I've done ministry at. Let me just give you a recap of every marital fight, every conflict that I've ever counseled, okay? Without exception. Here's what it is. I sit down with the husband and the wife, and each one of them says basically this. It's okay that I'm sinning because my spouse is sinning against me. That's basically their argument each time. So I sit down with the couple, and I say, what's wrong? And the guy says, well, my wife won't submit, and she's being awful. I know I'm not really leading like I should be, but really, she just, she's crazy. And I say, okay, let me just summarize what you've said. You're not going to lead well because your wife's not doing what she's supposed to do. And then I ask the wife, what's the problem? Well, he's harsh, and he's a terrible leader, and he just checks out, and these kind of things. Therefore, I'm not being the kind of wife the Bible tells me to be. Okay, so because he's sinning, your sin's now justified. Because she's sinning, your sin's now justified. That's every marriage fight I've ever had. If you're, can I get an amen from the married people? That, that is the fight. Yes, I realize I did this little wrong thing to you, but I did it because you did this worse thing. Here's why this text destroys that. This text says the reason that you do what God's asked you to do in a marriage is because of Jesus, not because of your spouse. It's not because your spouse is worthy that you submit. It's because Jesus is worthy that you submit. And conversely, the level at which you don't want to submit to your spouse says something about your spiritual life in Christ. It says something about your spiritual life in Christ. And here's another thing before we go on to the next verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands. Ask to the Lord. This is a big one. This does not mean that just because you have a different role in your home that you are in any way less valuable. That you are in any way less valuable. Okay? Let, let me give you three different ways that you can view men and women. Okay? Let me just, there, there are really only three. Let me give you these three ways. Sexism, egalitarianism, and what's called complementarianism. Let me define each of these. Sexism is not that men and women are different. That's a fact. Sexism is that one gender is more valuable than the other gender. That's actually what sexism is biblically. Sexism is that a man is somehow more of a human than a woman. Or a man is somehow more valuable or has more dignity than a woman. Or in some cultures where the woman, you know, we've got cultures in world history where women are worshipped and these kind of things. Sometimes it's where the women are more valuable than the men. Sexism is where one gender is seen as more of a human or more of a person or more valuable than the other person. Is that a biblical view? No. That is sin. The Bible teaches both men and women are made in the image of God. The Bible teaches that in Christ Jesus, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. Uh, husbands are told to be sensitive with their wives because they are, quote, fellow heirs in the grace of life. So sexism is not a biblical position. Sexism says not just that men and women are different. It says that men and women are unequal when it comes to value. This you see so much throughout world history, and it is sin, and it is despicable, and it should be disowned. The philosopher Plato 
uh, in his work, The Symposium, wrote about the glories of homosexual love because it was men instead of women. That's sexism. That's sin. Plato's a big influence. Aristotle thought that a woman was basically a deformed man. Okay? So a human, in Aristotle's mind, is trying to turn into a man, and when she gets stunted along the process, she becomes a woman. That's Aristotle. One of the most influential thinkers in the Western world, and it's sexism, and it's sin, and it's evil. Okay? Not his other things. He says a bunch of other great things, but on that issue, he's dead wrong. Okay? You ever heard the phrase rule of thumb? As a general rule of thumb? You know where that phrase comes from? There used to be statutes that would allow you to beat your wife as a husband as long as you used a stick no wider than your thumb. That is abuse. That is not treating her as a fellow heir of the grace of life. That is sin. That is sexism. That is not biblical. Okay? I've told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because it's an interesting story. When I was in Israel on a mission trip, we had this uh, Muslim merchant guy that came up and he tried to buy one of the women in our party for some camels. All right? Now, in case you're wondering, you're on the edge of your seat, we didn't make that deal, okay? There, there, it's not like he could go up in quantity and then we would make the deal. So he's like, 20 camels. We're like, no, 25. We're like, deal. How do we get these camels back on the plane? That's not happening, okay? That's sexism. That's seeing this woman not as being equally valuable as a human, but putting her on the same level as animals, Okay? That's sexism. That's sin. So, do we as Christians hold sexism that men or women are more valuable or better in God's eyes or that God loves one more than the other? We do not hold sexism. Okay? Now, on the other end of the spectrum is what's called egalitarianism. You hear the word equal, which is kind of in there. Excuse me, kind of in there. Egalitarianism is that men and women are equal in value, which is good, but then it goes on to say, and there are no distinctions between men and women in the home and in the church, okay? So if a church is egalitarian, they will have female elders, they will allow women to preach over men, they will uh, you know, say that sometimes a husband should submit in authority to his wife in the home, that's egalitarianism. So we as Christians are neither sexist nor egalitarian. We don't say that one gender is better than the other, but we also don't say there's no differences in role in the gender. We are what is called complementarian complementarian. You hear the word complement. The idea is that these two different roles that God has created go together. They're different, but that doesn't make one more important than the other. Which one's more important for your car, your gas tank, or your wheels? They're both equally important. You don't go very far without either, right? But just because they're different doesn't mean that somehow one is better. So just because a wife is commanded to submit to her husband, that doesn't mean she's somehow less valuable. What we hold with complementarianism is that men and women are equal in value, but we have different jobs specifically in the home and in the church. Now, here's what I want to do. This is the most controversial thing I will do all day. Ready? I'm just going to read a bunch of scripture. Okay? I'm not going to comment on it. I don't want... Th these, text, these texts I'm about to read are very difficult. Ladies, please don't key my car. Okay? These are difficult, difficult texts. But as I read these texts, Here's the only question I want you to ask. I want you to ask, does the Bible see that there are some differences between men and women, the complementarian position, or does the Bible see that there are no differences between men and women, specifically in the home and in the church? That's the egalitarian position, okay? All these passages I'm gonna read are from the New Testament. They're the way God wants it to be for his church. They're not as a result of the fall. They're not because women in the first century weren't educated. They're not because that was a different culture. The reasons that Paul is going to give and these other authors are going to give is theological. 
So I'm just going to read these texts, not going to comment on them. Don't get mad at me. Get mad at God. His shoulders are way broader than mine. He can take your abuse way better than I can. Send him emails. Send him emails. I'm just going to read this text, but I want you to ask yourself, are there some differences between men and women or no differences? If you see some differences, you're a complementarian. You're a complementarian. Let me just read the text. I'm just going to read them. 1 Corinthians 11, 7 through 9. For a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches, for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home, for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. 1 Timothy 2, 12 through 15. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Titus 2, 4 through 5. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 6. I was about to make a comment, but I'm not going to. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, and the, or, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who obeyed, I'm sorry, the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. The Bible sees God-given differences between men and women. Not less, not less valuable, not unimportant, but different, but different. Verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. We were just given the command, now we are given the reason for the command. Here's what this text is saying. Your marriage says something bigger than just your marriage. Your marriage says something about the gospel, okay? This is one of the reasons why God hates divorce, by the way, because it says something about his gospel which isn't true, which is that Jesus leaves the church. God cares about your marriage, and one of the things your marriage says as a wife submits to her husband is it is a picture, it is a little microcosm of what the church does to Christ. So let me ask this question. When the church submits to Christ, does the church do that uh, begrudgingly? Oh man, I hate submitting to that Jesus guy. Is that what the church does, or is it joyful? It's to be joyful. When the church submits to Christ, is it just so he doesn't damn us? It's just because it's out of fear? No, it's joyful. Does the church submit to Christ by saying, I'll follow Jesus in 90% of what he says, but that 10% of things I disagree with, I'm not going to follow that. No. As one counselor has said, if you agree with it, it's not submission. It's just what you want to do, right? So this text is saying that your marriage is a bigger, shows something bigger than just your marriage. It is a microcosm of the relationship between Christ and the church. Clinton Arnold, who's a New Testament scholar, helpfully says this. The reason Paul instructs wives to submit to their husbands is due to the fact that the husband-wife relationship in the Christian household 
is modeled on the relationship of Christ and the church. Listen to this next part. These role distinctions are therefore not based on something out of the old covenant now abolished in Christ, nor are they based on some kind of concession to the Greco-Roman or Jewish cultures. The pattern for role relationships in marriage is rooted deeply in the new covenant. Deeply in the new covenant. And then Plutarch. Who's Plutarch? He's a first century Greco-Roman writer. He says this, that a husband has authority over his wife not as the owner has control of a piece of property, but as the soul controls the body by entering into her feelings and being knit to her through good will. Okay, there's some theology. Let me give you practically how this works in our home, okay? What happens practically when Katie and I have a disagreement? Let me walk you through those steps and then we'll get to the next verse. Here's what this looks like practically. When Katie and I come together to make a decision, first of all, we make most of our decisions together. That's how a marriage is gonna work. It is a partnership, okay? We make most of our decisions together. Most of the time, we agree. Most of the time we agree. There's no controversy there. If you agree with your spouse on something, you're probably not going to conflict. Here's where it gets controversial. Let's say Katie and I are making some decision, and we sit down and we disagree. Okay? I say, this is the direction I think we need to go in, and she says, babe, I'm uncomfortable with that. I don't think that's the direction we need to go in. What do we then do? Okay? Well, here's what we do. Here are the steps that we go through. Number one, most of the time, I will defer to my wife because she's wiser than me and godlier than I am. Part of being a good leader means that if there's somebody under your authority who's better at something than you, you take that into account. Your wife, men, has been given to you as a helper. Hear your wife, hear her insights. Most of the time when Katie and I sit down and she says, I'm really uncomfortable with that, that's enough to get me to pump the brakes and go think through it some more. And most of the time, guess what? She's right. There you go. Katie's better than I am. I said it, babe. There you are. You win. You win. I'm kidding. We're, we're doing great. Okay. so. So that's how it works most of the time. Now, let's say she gives those objections, and I still disagree. I say, babe, I've heard you up. I, I get what you're saying. Thank you for that. I hear you, but I still disagree. The next step is for me to then bring in other men into the conversation that I chat with. Okay? I don't just make the decision on my own. We're way too individualistic in the church of just making decisions based on how we feel or just us. What I will do if Katie and I disagree, and I, I don't feel like she's going in the right direction, is that I will pray, I will study the Bible to see if the Bible has anything to say about it, and then I will call guys that I trust, and I will say, what would you do? What would you do? And that way, when I then come back to Katie, I can then either say, you know what, I talked to a bunch of guys, they agree with you, I'm sorry, or I can come back and I can say, babe, I love you, but this is the direction we're going in. This is the direction we're going in. Now, at that point, once I've heard her objections, I've talked to other men, I've prayed about it, I've studied the Bible to see if it says anything, and I bring that up to her and I say, this is still the direction we're going. At that point, she hops on my team. She says, okay, I've given my objection, the decision rests on you, so I'll follow you. She doesn't become passive aggressive. She doesn't say, okay, I'll follow you, but just can't wait till this thing crashes so I can tell you I told you so. She doesn't do that, she says, okay, you're the leader, now I'm on board. She gave her objections up until that point, but then once the decision was made, then she's on board. Then she's on board. Okay? That's the idea. That's the idea. Now, on Judgment Day, God will hold me accountable for whether or not I made the right decision. He will not hold Katie accountable for that. He'll hold her accountable to whether or not she submitted to it, assuming it's not sinful, assuming I've not asked her to sin. So there's a lot of fear, actually. There's a lot of uh, trepidation that goes into being a leader of your home. Because Katie knows, okay, I don't have to make the right decision. I have to submit to this. That's what God will hold me accountable for. But for me, if I've made the wrong decision, 
I will give an account before God or before God for that decision. For that decision. That's what it looks like practically. Notice that I take into account what my wife is saying. I don't treat her like a doormat. I use my leadership to hear her out. Notice, how does Christ lovingly lead the church? Is he mean and abusive and aggressive? He's gracious and he's kind and he's gentle. Last verse. Last verse. Verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. This context is very, very, very black and white. I would encourage you to avoid Christians that think that the roles of men and women are gray. The Bible is overwhelmingly clear on this. Just in case you didn't get the fact that it used the word submit, just in case you didn't get the fact that it occurs in a context we'll see later on about children submitting to parents and slaves submitting to masters, just in case you missed the idea of the husband being the head of the wife, just in case you missed the idea of in the same way that the church submits to Christ, so wives submit to their husbands, just in case you missed all that, this last verse says that wives should submit to their husbands, quote, in everything. Let's talk about what that does and doesn't mean. Here's what this means. If your spouse, ladies, asks you to do something sinful or illegal, which is also sinful, Romans 13, we obey the government. If your husband asks you to do something sinful, you do not follow that. But in everything else, you do. In everything else, you do. Well, Zach, what if he's making a bad decision? That's not on you. You submit to it as long as you're not sinning. Well, Zach, what if my husband is generally a sinner? So he's a sinner, so he just makes bad decisions. You submit to him, you don't yourself sin, okay? Well, Zach, what if he's awful to me and he's just a terrible husband for 40 years? You submit to him and you keep submitting and you persevere and that's precious in God's sight even though it's difficult. Well, Zach, I've got all these terrible things going on in my marriage. I can't live like this. Then come and talk to us. Why wouldn't you rope in the, why wouldn't you rope in the staff? Why wouldn't you rope in the elders? Why wouldn't you rope in Christian community? It's not disrespectful if your husband is treating you awful to let us know. That's part of what we do in community so we can help in this marriage situation. But if it's not you personally sinning, you submit to it. Hey, honey, put these drugs in your purse. No. Honey, let's watch pornography together. No. Honey, I think we're going to move to Alaska. Babe, I think that's a really bad decision. Tough, we're doing it. You go to Alaska. You go to Alaska. It's tough. This is not an easy text. I'm not saying this is a popular text. I'm not saying that there aren't men who will misuse their authority on this. We'll deal with the men next week for that. So here's what this looks like. Let me give you another illustration. One time, Katie and I were leaving a uh, friend's party, and we were riding in two separate cars, okay? So I was driving up front as the leader, I guess is what it's, it's symbolic of in this illustration. So I'm driving, and Katie is driving behind me, okay? I was driving some kind of gross beat-up Honda. She was driving a cherry red Mustang, okay? When I met Katie, she had a cherry red Mustang and an AK-47. So anyway, so I'm driving, and Katie is behind me in her car, okay? And we're going home. I forget where we're going. I just forget that, oh, I need to make this upcoming turn. And so I go over to the wrong side, which in this illustration will represent me walking us into sin. Me walking us into sin, okay? So we're right here. I'm leading. She's following. She's submitting. I'm the leader. I start drifting off into sin. Now, there's a few options she has. She can keep following me into sin. That wouldn't be what's right, okay? That wouldn't be the right option. She can also, though, say, Zach, you're going the wrong way, so I'm going to speed around. I'm going to take the reins of this relationship, and now I'm going to leave. That's not what you do, ladies. God is not asking you to fill the spiritual vacuum in your house if your husband is a poor leader. So what Katie does, as I'm not going in the right direction, is she does this. She shifts over into the correct lane, 
but she stays behind me. As if to say, you're still the leader. I will not follow you into sin, but I am submitting to you still. And I looked back and I thought, why is she in that lane? Oh, we need to turn right coming up. So I shifted back in and everything was good. That's the idea. Zach, I get it. I get submitting to your husband if you have a good husband, but what about a husband that's awful? First Peter, which we just read, says the way you win over your husband is by being submissive, not by kicking against his authority. So, will your husband sin? Will he make bad sinful decisions? Sure, but as long as you're not personally sinning, then you submit. Then you submit to that. Okay. With that in mind, I want to end with some questions. Okay, these are just meant to be personally for you. Men, I would encourage you not to bump your wife on these questions, as I will encourage her not to bump you next week. Okay? We're going to throw up some questions. We're going to start with number one. I'm going to ask the men a question, and then the rest are for the women. Husbands, in what ways are you using your wife's submission against her and misusing your authority instead of leading her well? In what ways are you using your wife's submission against her and misusing your authority instead of leading her well? Next week, Jeff's going to get into this, but the way you are to lead is the way Christ leads the church, which means you don't use your leadership for your good. You use your leadership for her good. Number two, ladies, specifically wives. If you're a single woman, this doesn't apply to you unless you're wanting to be married. Number two, wives, do you really believe that God's commands are out for your joy, or do you merely tolerate them? Tolerate them, okay? Do you really believe that God's commands are out for your joy? Number three, in what areas of your marriage are you failing to submit to your husband? Are you failing to submit to your husband? Again, if you're in just some really weird, sticky situation, let us know. We want to help as the church think through these things with you. Number four, do you encourage, lift up, and enjoy your husband, or are you critical and frustrated and emasculating towards your husband? Do you encourage, lift up, and enjoy your husband, or do you criticize and disrespect him? Do you emasculate your husband, and then you're mad at your husband for acting like he's emasculated? What if instead you were his cheerleader? What if instead you treated him the way you would treat him if he was great, and you just watched him flourish, and you watched him flourish? Number five, lastly, this is the big one. In what areas of your life are you thinking, I'll submit to my husband when he is the kind of man that deserves my submission, instead of, I'll submit to my husband because I love Jesus? That's everything. That's everything. The reason I started off by reading Weird Laws is this. I still submit to the government, though I don't agree with everything the government does. You know why? Because I love Christ. We give to Caesar what is Caesar's, to God's what is God's, and to your husband's what is your husband's. Let's pray as the men come forward to pass out communion. Father, we thank you for uh, just this difficult text. I don't even know what to do. I'm not ashamed of your word. I'm insecure, and so I pray that you would, uh, wherever someone has misheard me, wherever somebody is getting frustrated, wherever somebody has uh, had bad experiences, maybe in this, in the past, that you would just speak a kind word to them. I pray for all the marriages in this room. I know that that is one of the places where the devil attacks the most strongly, because if he can tear apart the family unit, he can tear apart everything else. And so I pray that you would... Uh, protect those marriages, that you would bless them. I pray right now uh, where there uh, is strife. I pray if there is a woman in here being uh, abused, that she would come forward, not now, but later in the week and let us know. I pray that if there's a man who doesn't know how to lead his wife, that he'd give us a phone call. 
I pray that if there's just been 30 years of tension and coldness, that you would do something in them, that you do something in their community group, or you do something in their conversation over lunch, or whatever it might be. Would you help us? We confess that we're wise, even though there's a lot in your word we don't like. We also confess that's how we know we're reading it correctly. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.